Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we're delighted to have as our guest the one and only Jen Wilkin. Jen is a Bible teacher and writer. She serves on the ministry staff of the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. And she's the author of None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing, and Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds. Jen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. You know, um, the first thing I want to ask you, because of um, you know how well-known you are in, in teaching um, theologically, being a faithful Bible teacher, is sort of some background. When and how... Uh, did you first fall in love with the Bible? Well, it, it was a process. I grew up in a lot of different churches. My mom was a single parent, and that can be a tough fit as a church member. Um, I think she kind of was restless moving from place to place looking for where she could find community. And so we went through a bunch of different kinds of churches as, a, as I was a child, and ended up in college with sort of this, um, I think I'd been in seven different denominations by the time I, I hit college. And wow. had this chance in college, obviously, to kind of figure out, okay, well, where do I land on this? And what had struck me was that um, there was always someone standing behind a, a, a podium speaking with a tone of authority, opening up the Bible, but they weren't all saying the same thing. And uh, during our travels, I had made my way through a couple of Bible churches, and that was where I had seen, I would say, the most orderly approach taken to the preaching, and so <laughs> I was drawn to that, and um, and began to just think, well, if, if not everybody is saying the same thing, and the only way that we can judge which teaching is, is true and which teaching is not is by having a first-hand knowledge of the Bible, so... Um, I think then, and also I was an English major, so I'm, I'm studying all this other literature, and and yet every time I come to my Bible, someone is telling me to read it in a way that was completely removed from anything that I was being taught uh, regarding other uh, works of writing. And so I, I also developed a curiosity around why, do, why don't we read the Bible like a book? Hmm. And I would say that those two things together uh, were kind of the starting point for my love of the Bible and my desire to see it opened in a way that honors it for what it is. Yeah. Well, give me some examples of, um, I mean, you don't have to name, name the, you know, the churches or anybody, <laughs> but I mean, well, what was the kind of preaching, you, yeah, what was the kind of preaching you heard that sort of disappointed you or you felt like the Bible was worth more than how it was be presented? There was, there was the, the typical sermon where it was a series of personal stories strung together. It lasted maybe 20 minutes. Um, and that would be just sort of like, wow, we, we all took a lot of effort to get here this morning. Like, I put on special clothes. There's a choir. And, <laughs> and you, you had a whole week to get ready. And that's it. You know, this was this fantastic passage. So there, there was that kind of thing. But then there was also, uh, frankly, a lot of, uh, bad teaching associated with the word faith movement, name it and claim it. And I spent some time with people who believe they could control weather patterns with their words. Whoa. Uh, or, you know, or, or even more so like family members. <laughs> <with their> words, <laughs> which would be even more miraculous. So, uh, so, you know, seeing the, the very real fallout of that belief system. I have a, I have a family member with a chronic illness. And when you're in those environments, the way that those kinds of people are treated is, is pretty tough because, if you're not getting better from your illness, it's your fault. Hmm. So 
uh, I think those kinds of those are probably the two ends of the spectrum that I spend time in, yeah. uh, and then and then pretty much everything in between. I think so. You know, I just I, I reached a point where I was like, there are real and painful consequences for false teaching. I'm not even talking about like the fact that sinners don't get saved under certain kinds of teaching. I'm talking about like even the believer can can lose hope, can lose heart uh, when when taught uh, false things from the scriptures from their own sacred text. Yeah, I think most folks um, understand, or most folks outside of sort of the Word of Faith or Prosperity Gospel movement understand um, the appeal of it or why people would be drawn to it because of the great promises. But what's the appeal? I've often wondered about this. Um, what's the appeal of the sort of personal anecdote, um, you know, sentimental chit-chat uh, you know, side of, of of preaching. What would you say? What you know, you sat there, you realized that there was something amiss about that, as sweet or as pleasant as it could be. But w- why would other people, you know, enjoy that? Why would they want that out of church? Well, uh, we all desire a relationship with God. We want personal relationship with God, right? And so, the person who is the mouthpiece for God in the in the most and the most, I'm not getting Catholic on you here. I'm just saying that most people regard their their pastor as the one who's going to impart deep spiritual truths to them. We want him to be personable. Mm-hmm. But I think on the other side of that is, in both of those cases, whether you're talking about word faith or you're talking about sort of the watered-down, over-personalized version of preaching, um, those are both ways to wield types of power. So the word faith preacher has his own form of power. He He's telling people, I've got a power I can transfer to you that you can use to manipulate God. And then the, the over-personalized pastor is saying, I have a power personality that can carry this uh, without any need for the power that comes from just straight-up preaching from the Word of God. So it's just it's power-broken in, in, in different ways. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I, I think. I mean, Yeah. No, that's, a, that's an interesting point, and I, I never really thought of it that way. I do think sort of the sentimentality of it appeals um, to, you know, sentimental religious folks, I suppose. Um, okay. So you're going, um, you know, you're developing this, um, respect, this, um, you know, sense of, uh, of interest of the importance, the gravity of the word. You're an English major in college. Um, how did you know that God had gifted you to teach? At what, at what point did that sort of, you know, come into your realization? I, I really, it took a long time. It, when I was in college, ironically, getting an English degree, which we all know translates into all kinds of really great careers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was an English I, major I, as I, well, I, by I, the way. <laughs> yeah, high five. So I I was, I was would tell people, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm definitely not going to teach. I mean, that, you know, I'm like, that doesn't pay anything. I, I had no idea. I was the same way. Yes, <laughs> also doesn't pay, right? But I was... Uh, and I knew that English didn't translate into any kind of lucrative career. I was a different person at that point. I'm still thinking, how can I conquer the world and bend people to my will? And <laughs> and so really, word faith was a good fit for me, right? So I'm getting this degree, and I end up getting a master's in business so I can get gainful employment. But I just love language so much that I wanted the English degree. And, uh, and I get a job uh, working as a buyer for a major department chain. So I was pretty determined I was going to not be a teacher, although pretty much everybody in my family is a teacher, is a public educator. So I had like this teaching heritage there that I was just trying to shove down. And then meanwhile, I keep getting asked by people, like I was in a sorority, which 
it's fine if that's your thing. I, it was a bad fit for me. I did not belong there. They didn't. I, I'm pretty sure the only reason they pledged me is because they were on probation for grades and they needed my GPA. Because <laughs> I had nothing in common with these sweet girls. And so then they put me on the standards board where I was supposed to, like, rebuke people for suggestive dancing. It was awful. <laughs> and then at some point they said, would you teach a Bible study for the, for the girls in the sorority? Because I guess I was like, you know, in the in the kingdom of the blind, the one I man is king. And I was the one who had like a little bit of spiritual something to me at that point. So I'm like, well, sure. And I taught this Bible study and girls came and they learned. And then I'm learning. You know, I'm thinking, wow, there's way more here than I've given credit for. And uh, got out of college, married Jeff. Uh, I don't mean to state that as a footnote. I should say that was more fervor because it was a pretty great thing. Then, then we join, we get lured into joining this Southern Baptist Church because my mom told us it was a great church and she's like, they're Southern Baptist, they're not really Southern Baptist. <laughs> and we get there and it was a great church. We were there for 13 years. Um, I start having kids, quit my job, and I just need to not be at home in my pajamas. You know, like I need a reason to live. And, and, and get dressed. And so someone invites me to women's Bible study, and that was kind of the beginning for me. I sat in small groups, you know, for a couple of years at, at women's Bible study. And at first I was like, oh gosh, this is great. These are my people. But then over time I began to feel, I would imagine you can identify with this, that, oh, I would have said it this way, or oh, I really like, I wish we could spend more time here. And all that starts turning inside of me. And then I start talking way too much in small groups. <laughs> and um, and then they handed and over the reins. Jackie, yeah, well, Jackie, Jackie Jackson, she was in charge of the Bible study, and she stuck her head into the room one day and said, "Hey, would you come out here for a second? And I thought, "They're sending me home. I can't stay here anymore. I talk too much." It pulls me out into the main area, and she says, "Have you ever thought maybe you have a teaching gift?" And then proceeded to give me opportunities, and that was pretty much it took off from there. Yeah, you know... I, so I just, I, you know, I, I look back on that and I just appreciate that she was looking for the next person to, to start doing that. That's a, that's a huge thing. Right, well, and I think that's sort of um, one component to discipleship that a lot of, um, you know, a lot of folks have, have missed, or at least, uh, you know, I don't want to indict the generation uh, ahead of um, uh, ours or ahead of, ahead of mine, but the sense of passing the baton um, I think is so important to I you know that she had the eyes and ears to see that you know to see you not as an annoying person who talked too much but as um, you know potential as as a gift for you know the church to be um, you know blessed by I think it's great and I I do think there's a lot of you know um, well I, I, uh, you know for me in middle age it's something that I'm trying to be more conscious of uh, when you talked about Oh, I would have said it that way, said it this way. I think I, I was more like that coming out of pastoral ministry um, at, at first. <laughs> but what, what, what helped in coming to a church where I'm, you know, I'm not just a guy who sits in the pews, but uh, on, you know, in the worship gathering, that's what I am, a guy who sits in the pews. Um, having been on that end of receiving all of the helpful <laughs> hints and tips and words of advice, um, I, I know better. My better nature sort of, you know, helps me sort of bite my tongue. And now, two years out, two and a half years out, um, 
I find that I'm not evaluating, which is great. I, I can actually go and, mm-hmm. and, and focus on what's being said and what we're seeing and that sort of thing. Okay, so you sort of, um, you know, we're uh, segueing, I think, into, um, you know, you were in a, a Bible study there and, you know, the leader of the Bible study is now handing the thing off. Uh, or, or wanting you to steward your gifts, um, you know, in a teaching way. Um, I wonder just in the broader sense, if you can give us an appraisal of the state of women's ministry or women's discipleship in, in the American church as you see it. Um, you know, my wife for the longest time, you know, hated women's ministry things. She loved studying the Bible. She loved studying theology. Yeah. She loves to read. Um, she wouldn't consider herself a teacher, although I do think that she is a capable teacher. But you know, she would stay as far away as she could from women's ministry events because she found them, um, I don't know what the word is, infantilizing or, you know, patronizing, mm-hmm. cutesy, that sort of thing. Do you think things are changing? Do you think things are getting better? And if so, how? I think it's a really hopeful time. Uh, I think it's a pivotal time. And I am not sure what will happen next. I know what I hope will happen next. What I see typically is that among younger women, although it's weird, so like I'm 48, so I'm sort of right in the middle between this older generation and this younger generation. Some would argue I'm leaning towards the older generation. (laughs) But uh, the younger women are just done with the surface things for the most part. But I also see younger women who, without knowing it, are sort of repackaging that older thing, that highly emotionalized um, sort of shallow thing, and it's kind of like gotten a Pinterest makeover, but it's basically <laughs> the same formula that they want to reject in their moms and and grandmothers. So I do think it's a critical moment. I think that the younger generation of women did not grow up with some of as many of the same messages that the older women did of. Um, you know, well, you're you're the emotional component of the church, and that's kind of your thing, so you, you play in that corner. They do understand that they are thinkers. They have gotten that message all through school. But what I do find to be a challenge is that many of them bring the full force of their intellect to every sphere they inhabit except the church. They check their brain at the door because they think that the church is the place where you go to have the field. And so my hope is that we will uh, not allow that, that we will begin to cultivate a vision of women in the church that is fully orbed, that we would see them as thinkers and as healers and as doers, and that we would deploy their gifts within the local church in a way that enriches its mission. And I think historically, women's ministry has been sort of quarantined over to some corner, and we find a woman who is willing to run it, and she may be the only woman who is reporting to an all-male staff other than the children's minister. Uh, She's probably not paid, because you have to have a church of a certain size to even be able to offer her any kind of compensation for what she's doing. And then she's going to have limited input and, and, and then reciprocal input from whoever she's reporting to. She's probably reporting to a dude, and he's like, I don't know what the heck's going on over there, but if that's what the ladies like, keep them happy. <laughs> and we need to change that formula. Um, the, the men who control calendars and budgets, uh, et cetera, at churches 
need to look on women's discipleship and say, this is important, uh, and, and how can we partner with whoever this female leader is to make sure that it is accomplishing everything that it can, rather than saying, well, if what's going on over there doesn't make any sense to me, but the women are happy, it must be what they need. I think that's been the assumption that has come from pastors, and I think that it's the assumption that has come, frankly, from the publishing industry as well. Uh, you know, hey, they're buying these books, so this must be what they, this is the way that women receive teaching. And I'm like, that is not teaching. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> uh, so there's a, there, there's, there's a lot of potential, and then there are a lot of systems that have been in place for a long time that are going to take some time to shift. But I'm hopeful. I really feel like, um, I feel like we're at a turning point that could take us to uh, really a new day. Yeah. Well, you know, I think part of it could be um, this assumption, or is this, you know, assumption that um, well, they like it, you know, they seem happy. Um, sure. But do you think there's something else in the? Um, I mean, you know, I know it's hard to kind of diagnose, you know, in a broad sense, but where these, um, where the sort of, you know, sentimental, cutesy, non-intellectual or or, or non-serious kinds of women's discipleship and women's ministry. Um, takes place. Do you also think that maybe there are pastors who either, um, I, you know, I don't know if we want to call it chauvinism or, or, or sexism, but are they afraid? Um, or is it like a misunderstanding of complementarianism uh, to think that women don't need that? Um, even if they wanted it, you don't really need that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think both of those things are definitely in play. But I, I find that more often than not, it is... Um, it's just a sin of omission. They they have a thousand other things that are on fire, and that one doesn't feel urgent to them. Um, and I think it's weird. There's this weird disconnect within complementarianism in particular, where we have a tendency to say, well, like, just what I find, like, in church plants, and, you know, because you've got all these young guys who started churches up and everything, and they're like, well, well why do we need women's ministry? Um, everybody can just be discipled the same. And I'm like, you're a complementarian. <laughs> what we say is that men and women are not interchangeable. So why would we assume that discipleship for men and women is an interchangeable thing? And so I would say that for complementarians in particular, it's important for us to evaluate what are the unique aspects of discipleship for women versus men. And I think what we've done is we've said, oh, women like to do this, so this is what women should do, and men like to do this, so this is what men should do, rather than ask the question of, what do we need to push women on? Like, what is the thing that's not intuitive for them? So why don't we push them um, to, to flex that muscle? And then what are the things that are more difficult for men? Why don't we push them on the things uh, that they need to flex a little bit as well? And I would say one of the places I've seen this play out the most has been with um people who use a pure groups model in their churches. But the thing is pretty typical among church planners, right? Like mm. you're like, hey, let's let's be simple church. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> and it and it is it is a great idea for a lot of reasons, uh, administrative, etc. But um but it's funny because what it can end up doing, it may, means that you have virtually zero gender specific groups. Like women are, are only gathering just as groups of women maybe for a prayer time, right? Other than that, it's men and women in rooms together. And, and, and those environments are really great for building community. Everybody would say that. Right. But they're tough environments for teaching, for learning a passage. They're just tough. Hmm. And um, 
so what ends up happening is you have these heavily community populated environments. Well, women can do community in their sleep. I mean, like that's <laughs> for me the challenge of teaching a Bible study is getting them to stop doing community and start doing the lesson. Yeah. But men, it kind of the flip tends to be true, right? They can sit down and have a thought level discussion of the text, but community, they're like, no, I don't love it, but my wife dragged me here. And so when you develop a ministry model that is purely group-driven, you're pushing men on this thing that's hard for them all the time, community, 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 but you're giving women a path. And so it's important that we be thinking about what are the environments we need to create that are speaking uniquely to the the, the base tendency that, that, that most men or most women would have when they're, they're approaching ministry environments. You know, I was, um, it brings to mind a, f- a few years ago when I was in um, Vermont, I started a men's discipleship group. Um, the ladies already had a Bible study, but there was no men's uh, a Bible study going on. So I started this men's discipleship group, and one of the guys um, came up to me to ask if there was going to be tea there. Is there going to be tea there? <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was like he was scared. No, he wasn't. It, he wasn't hopeful. He was fearful. <laughs> and I said, "Do you want there to be tea there?" And he's like, "Well, not really." So I think he was picturing it as like this little dainty fellowship, you know. And I said, "No, we'll drink coffee. You drink whatever you want, you know." <laughs> All right. So I want to explore this uh, this idea of how men learn, how women learn. Do you teach the Bible differently to them? That sort of thing. Um, but um, let's take a pause for a minute. Let's take a break and, uh, and hear from our friends at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern College is preparing and equipping the leaders of today and tomorrow. Our students continue to be agents of change both in the United States and around the world. The unique community environment at Midwestern College fosters spiritual, personal, and academic growth as students deepen their understanding of the Word of God and the world He created. With our dual degree option, students can get grounded in the truth while getting ready for the marketplace. Our Accelerate program allows students to pursue both their Bachelor of Arts and their Master of Divinity simultaneously in one intensive five-year program. Midwestern College, both residential and online degrees available. Midwestern is the sensible option for preparing and equipping the leaders of today and tomorrow. Find out more at MidwesternCollege.com. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. All right, we're back with Jen Wilkin, a Bible teacher and writer. And uh, Jen, I want to follow up with what we were just talking about, um, the sense of men and women, how they study the Bible, what they're wanting out of um, their discipleship experiences. And so I have to ask, do you think um, women learn the Bible differently than men? Um, And so do you have to teach it differently to women than you do to men? know that I would say we necessarily learn it differently. I think that the environments in which we learn it differently may require uh, more thought. I'm sorry, the environments in which we learn it may require 
more thought. Um, we can't just assume that because we have opened up a room in a building and made space available that women will show up and invest. So for women in particular, I think the first thing you have to do is uh, remind them that they're thinking beings, right? That they're called to love God with their minds as much as the men are. Uh, some women, that's an easy flip for them, but, but others may need a little more convincing. And some of that's just because they've been so conditioned by the kinds of resources and the kinds of teaching that tend to be prevalent in, in women's circles. And then I think the next, the next sell for women is to say, um, hey, you know what? The Bible is a book about God because we have been resourced almost exclusively with very us centered resources. So the first question we're asking is, what should I do and how should it change me? So you got to kind of back them up and go, hey, there's a bigger purpose here. Uh, so, so I'd say those two things matter a whole lot in the current culture with regard to teaching women. Now, does that mean that, um, that a woman who hasn't been sort of socialized by some of those, those past environments needs those things? No, I think some women come to the table. We, you know, a brain is a brain, right? But we are also prisoners of our own experience. And so in, in most cases, women come into the room with a different set of strengths and weaknesses than the men do. Yeah. I- you know, some of the pushback that sometimes we hear um, on this just sort of, you know, dialogical or, um, you know, monological, uh, you know, forms of preaching um, are, you know, mm-hmm. you know, people come up with these, um, well, not the, you know, they're not making it up, but so, that, you know, sort of the critique that they might have is, you know, my learning style is different. Uh, I remember once, you, yeah. know, um, you know, recommending that people don't need to take notes during the sermon. Um, you know, I wasn't forbidding that or anything, but just suggested that, right. you know, note-taking communicates something different. And I just wanted to give people, you know, in my mind, I was actually giving them a break. Like, you don't have to take notes. You, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not mad if you do, but you don't have to take notes. Well, then I would hear all sorts of feedback about how, you know, writing is sort of my learning style and, and this, that, and the other thing. And, and, and so what you're saying or what I'm hearing you say is, is not that women have, you know, uh, in different brains or, or, or different learning styles than men. Um, but that perhaps the the emphasis that the evangelical culture has has brought to women's teaching is really the problem or the sort of context, the communal context in which the teaching is, uh, you know, being conducted. Like, you know, maybe that's the problem. It's not necessarily that they hear differently or, or, or you know, process differently. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it has, there are implications, too, for like the small group portion. So I'm teaching a large format Bible study. But back in the day, and for many years, I taught in my living room, right? So we would go through whatever the homework assignment had been for the week, and, and I would hear their responses to the questions, whereas now they're doing that in a small group setting. But in those small group settings, the same, the same thing that I saw you know, back when it was my living room continues to happen. It's that women fear giving an incorrect answer. So and this is actually, you can see this is sociologically true, that women are less likely to guess at an answer to a question than men are. Men just have this thing in them where they're like, well, I don't know, maybe this sounds right. You know, <laughs> and women are like, ooh, I don't want to be perceived as having gotten it wrong. So, like, at the end of each week of my homework, the way that I structure it, I ask a question about the attributes. I say, what attribute of God did you see in the text this week? And knowing that that's true about God, how could you live this week differently? So, every week, same question. And I still get emails from women, or women will come up to me after the, the week is uh, the teaching's concluded and say, yeah, what was the answer to that question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> what? You know, so 
they have a really hard time with that, which means that we set up, we, we, we go in and we train our small group leaders with that in view. We say, hey, and then, and then I say from the platform at the beginning of each semester, some of these questions are going to be hard, and I want you to speculate. I give you permission because that's part of the learning process. And, and so there are, I think there are things like that that we need to think of. Are we accommodating women where they typically show up in our studies? Or are we asking them to take a leap that they're not ready for yet and, and they just don't, they just need permission? Yeah. You know, a lot of people listening probably, um, you know, lead or participate, of course, uh, in Bible studies, Sunday school classes and that sort of thing. Um, what's some wisdom you would give? I think this is a, um, you know, something that's, uh, you know, on a lot of people's minds. I know it was, you know, on mine in, in leading small groups. And when someone does give a wrong answer, uh, you know, theologically, or they just say something that is um, perhaps spiritually unhelpful, um, how do you handle that? As a, I mean, share your wisdom with the audience here. What's the best way to handle that? Somebody has just said something that, you know, you can't leave it unanswered. How do you, how do you answer it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Particularly in a group full of women where there's just a, a heavy, uh, there can be a shame culture in place. Uh, you want to sort of diffuse the, the, the correction moment. So what I would always do is when someone says that thing and you're like, well, that's, that's going to be tough to bring back around. <laughs> I will say, okay, well, that's an interesting perspective. I've heard that before. Um, Anybody else have any thoughts on this? Susie, what do you think? And and then you get other people in the group kind of be like, well, I don't know. I've heard this. And, and let them introduce. And it's good to have it's good to have backup, right? So like in our in our structure, we try to make sure that every leader has a co leader. So that co leader's got her back. So that if someone says something that is uh, doctrinally off or, or is just completely out of left field, they can kind of have each other's back. So you know, leader number one can be like. Huh, that's a that's an interesting perspective. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Leader number two wastes the appropriate amount of time for other people to weigh in, and then comes out with, "Well, what about this? I'm pretty sure this is what the church has taught for two thousand years." But that way, by the time the answer comes out, it feels like it was more of a consensus gathering and collaborative effort, which is something that women value. They value consensus seeking, and they value collaboration. Uh, men are more straight-line thinkers. You know, they, they value just reports and someone shouting out the right answer. And, and in a women's group, that that doesn't fly. And, and so that's why you can hear kind of coming out, I think, in what I'm saying, why I value single-gender learning environments having a place in the church. I don't think that we should exclusively have single-gender learning environments. I think it's a both-and. But there's a there's a there's a very unique and beautiful thing that happens when a group of women gathers to discuss a text versus when a when a mixed gender group gathers. Gotcha. So you, you wouldn't just right off the bat say heresy and then and then move on to uh, the next yeah. question. Yeah, well, it depends <laughs> on who it is. If it's someone I don't like, I would totally do that. <laughs> sure. Well, your approach seems much more pastoral <laughs> and much more yeah, sensitive. I'll, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I always score really high on those compassion things, on those those personality charts. So, do you really? Uh, I'm being ironic. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure because. Uh, <laughs> all right. Anyway, what do you <laughs> what do you wish more pastors uh, knew about the women in their church? 
um, specifically as it relates, you know, to ministry, serving, teaching, discipleship, et cetera. If, you know, if you could, um, if you had, you know, a few minutes with every pastor in in evangelicalism, uh, what would be some of your primary points about women in the church? Um, two things come to mind. The first is you really need to be aware of what voices are influencing the women in your church. Uh, don't ever assume that it's the same set of voices that are influencing the men. And I know there have been a couple of really visible female voices recently who have come out publicly and and expressed positions that are not historical orthodoxy, but to the chagrin of women and pastors. And so it's just really important to know how deep is the influence of this this voice that's out there. And, and I really would say, I, I firmly believe that the antidote to a, an external voice like that having such an influence on your women is to have women in your church who have been cultivated to have a deeper influence, no matter what is said from a parachurch platform. So I think it's incumbent on pastors to be asking the question that my friend Jackie was already asking as a woman leader of who are the women in our church who we can cultivate to be speaking into the lives of these other women with with greater authority than any voice outside of our body will ever be able to carry. So that when someone says something from a public platform, you have someone you can go and talk to and process it with who, who is also a woman and, and gets why that person's message appealed to you. So there's that piece. And then related to that piece, I would love to gently remind every pastor, some pastors get this, many pastors get this and are great at it. I would like to gently remind pastors that women are not a nice but not necessary addition to the church. They are essential and indispensable to the mission of God. And I say that because I have a chance with the travel that I do and the conferences that I attend to sit in a lot of rooms that are predominantly men and predominantly uh, seminary graduates. And the message that is typically coming from those platforms is, um, is heavily focused on cultivating pastors or men who are doing pastoral ministry. And there are a lot of military metaphors and sports metaphors and, um, you know, a lot of talk about bands of brothers and uh, bro this and bro that. And that's all great. Like, I had four brothers. I think brothers are fantastic. But the church is a family of God made up of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And we have to be careful that we don't um, function as a single parent family. And so I would love for pastors everywhere to give thought to how am I raising up mothers in the church and how am I ensuring that brothers and sisters are partnering in the good work of carrying forth the gospel. That's awesome. I, I, I really hope um, a lot of uh, pastors will listen to this and um, heed these words. I, you know, just even that tone, the emphasis, the thing that you just mentioned, um, even from the standpoint of um, relating to men, you know, it's yeah. one of the realities of, of actually being a good clued in pastor when you discover that um, not all of your men resonate with military imagery or sports <laughs> metaphors. And, um, you well, know, and some of your women do. I mean, it's right. Not, that's yeah. right. That's exactly right. 
Jen Wilkin, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for letting me come on. Yeah. We've been speaking, of course, with Jen Wilkin, author and Bible teacher at the Village Church. Please check out her books on Amazon.com or wherever good books are sold and read her online writing at the Village Church blog, Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, and other great sites. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.